0: Philippians chapter two, and we are continuing in Missio Christi, and this is flesh part three, and I think, Lord willing, maybe, who knows, but you know me, this might be the last part to flesh, but we'll see what the Lord does. I do want to let you know, as you're going to Philippians chapter two, that we have a new website up this week, uh, missiochristi.net, missiochristi.net. Want you guys to go there, want you to familiarize yourselves with the sites and then, and with the site and then participate in the site here 's the deal with it. Um, I think that it 's important that we talk about theology as a community, and the way that we kind of do church in America is, is cool and not necessarily a bad thing, but usually i 'm talking about theology a lot, and you guys are doing a lot of listening. you guys are doing some of that in your home groups. Uh, But this is a way for us to kind of expand how we're doing church and speak with each other on a broad level about theology and practicality, what God is doing in our lives. So The website is all set up so that you guys can share. You guys can share how the Missio Christi is playing out in your life. Please give us praise reports and stories. People have already been putting great ones up about what Christ is doing in you, through you, in the world, around you. So there's a bunch of places for you to share on that website and we'd love for you to do that. I think that's important for us as a community of faith to do that as a community. So that's an an avenue by which we can do it very easily. The other feature of the website is that I'm asking you guys to help me with the sermons and then with the book that these sermons are going to become. I want your guys' input. So I've mapped out all the sermons that I'm going to be doing in this series there for you to look at, the the topic and the text, and you can go and kind of look at the topic and the title and the text and read it, and then give me your input. Tell me what you see in that scripture. What did you pull out of John chapter 4? What did you see in John 8? What do you see in Mark 1? So on and so forth. And then share with me your insights and, uh, help me with the sermons and help me with the book. And the other way that you can help me is with application, Gosh, when it comes to preaching, I'm just not good at application. I don't, I don't know why that is. I love preaching doctrine and theology, but I, I just don't always put the dots together when it comes to application. Especially in my own life, it seems. And uh, those of you that are close to me always tease me about this in my preaching that I'll preach this doctrinal sermon and then the application is, "Come get on the carpets and worship Jesus." <laughs> it's kind of wanting at the end for something more. So. I'm asking you guys to help me with that. Go read those texts, read where we're gonna be going and give some points of application. Here's how it's played out in my life. Here's how it might play out in the life of the church and the church gathered and scattered. So it's a really neat interactive website. Love for you guys to go there this week and be a part of that. Now in Philippians chapter two, we're gonna read verses three through eight and then talk more about the incarnation and mission. Philippians two, verse three says do nothing from selfish or empty conceit but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others and have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he surrendered some of those rights and prerogatives, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient To the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible gospel represented in this passage, that you came to seek and save the lost, and that you gave your life that we might live. Thank you, Lord, for that beautiful truth. Thank you, God, that you are so incredible that you would humble yourself to become a man, not just any man, but a servant. And not just a servant, but one who would die for others. And we ask, Lord, that as a church, you would make us a better representation of that reality. That we would be servants. That we would be humble. That there would be a death that takes place in our lives. A dying to self. A dying to self-interest. A promoting of your interests and the interests of others over and above our own. And Lord, we, we just confess that this takes a deep work in us of your Holy Spirit. We can't muster this up. We can't be religious about this. We're tired of trying to fake this. We need you to do a deep lasting work in us of humility patterned after the person of Christ. And so we ask that you would and speak to us now, Holy Spirit, teach us I Ask that you would strengthen me and anoint me to communicate your truth for your glory you would anoint these words to be agents of transformation in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in addition to all that we've already said about the incarnation, we wanna suggest a few more ways this morning that the incarnation shapes Christian mission. Remember as a backdrop that mission has its beginning in the very essence of God the very nature of God, that God is love and God is a community. And that denotes that God reaches out in love from himself. And so that provides for us that mission has its beginning in the very essence of God, a deeper impetus for mission, a a better reason to be involved in the work of God because it flows from the very nature of God. Congruently now, The model for mission comes from the incarnation. The beginning of mission is seen in the nature of God. The model of mission is seen in the incarnation of Christ. And that provides for us a deeper expression of Christian mission, a better doing of what Christ would have us do in the world. So one of the things that we want to grab this morning about the incarnation and mission is this. Since God became flesh in the person of Christ, because God became flesh in the person of Christ, we now know that God cares deeply about both the spiritual and the material. The incarnation informs how we as Christians feel about not only the spiritual realm, but the material realm as well. And you gotta know that throughout history, this is not your run-of-the-mill understanding of God. Not all cultures have understood or perceived God as a God who cares about the material and the spiritual equally. There's often been an exclusion of the material and a disdaining of the material, but that's not what we see in the triune God of the Bible. So what the Christian is able to say is this, and this is point number one. We, the church, God's people, we care about feeding people, fighting disease, fighting suffering, and fighting poverty as much as we care about preaching the Bible and fighting unbelief and fighting heresy. That's a big statement. So let me say it again. We, the church, because of the incarnation, what we see in Christ, care as much about feeding people, fighting disease, suffering, and poverty as preaching the Bible and fighting unbelief and heresy. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the former takes precedent over the latter, that humanitarian work, if you will, dealing with suffering and poverty and so on and so forth, takes precedent over, or is more important than the preaching of the Bible and the fighting of heresy and unbelief. I'm not saying that it takes precedent. And I'm also not... And that has been, by the way, a misunderstanding of Christian mission in recent history. That the missio dei, the mission of God, is unfolding purely in the secular realm on those fronts. And that's a misunderstanding. I'm not saying that that takes precedent or that's the only thing that God cares about. I am saying that what we see in Jesus as he interacts with humanity is attention given to both. Radical attention given to both. In fact, we see this not just in the incarnation, but we see this played all the way out through the Bible. God in his love for Israel both fed them in the wilderness and revealed the law to them in the wilderness. It's not as though he just let them go hungry and said, don't worry about that material junk. Just come to Sinai and hear my law. That's not what we see in the scripture. We see that he cared deeply about their physical needs. And when they were hungry, he fed them and he revealed the law to them and instructed them. We see this throughout the Bible. We understand that part of our salvation is the redemption of our physical bodies. God created the world and he said, It's good. He doesn't just do away with it. Part of us being saved is it's not just our spirits that are saved, but our physical bodies are going to be redeemed. What do we believe about the resurrection, but that Christ was resurrected physically and still has a physical body, and that when He comes again, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, Zechariah 12:10. He will still bear the wounds. God cares about the physical. We will receive glorified bodies. There's food in heaven. Don't you understand the marriage supper of the lamb? This is good news. <laughs> and the Bible tells us that God will renew the heavens and the earth. It's not as though it just becomes the heavens and the earth was this horrible mistake that goes away. But God will renew the heavens and the earth. He cares about the spiritual and he cares about the physical equally. So then, what the incarnation leads us to is a more holistic approach to mission, to ministry, to evangelism. That's what we need to have as Christians. Here's a good sort of holistic definition of evangelism. To make known by word, okay, preaching, proclamation, and deed, okay, demonstration, how we live, to make known by word and by deed the love of the crucified and risen Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not merely a humanitarian thing, it's a supernatural thing. In the power of the Holy Spirit so that people will repent, believe, and receive Christ as their savior and obediently serve him as their Lord in the fellowship of his church. So that's a right understanding of evangelism and mission. It's not just proclamation. It's not just demonstration. It's holistic. It involves both. And if we're careful with scripture, we'll see that there's always a balanced approach. And the church has sometimes failed to be balanced. It's an overgeneralization, but it's still true to say that generally speaking, much of the liberal church in recent history has overemphasized good deeds or humanitarian work. That first part. It is also true to say in modern history that much of the conservative church has overemphasized good preaching. So the liberal church, an overemphasizing of good deeds, and the conservative church, an overemphasis on good preaching. But what the incarnation does for us, a theological understanding of that, is gives us a passion for both. Because what we see in the embodiment of Christ is that God cares about both. And that we then, as a church on mission, cannot set caring for people and preaching for two people over and against one another that would be to violate the very nature of the incarnation after which we model our mission. We care about both because Christ was both, fully God and fully man. So the one author says, and we would agree, evangelical theology insists that the church has a fundamentally spiritual mission, yet this is a mission that is realized not in withdrawal or attachment from the afflictions and the conflicts of humanity, but in the very midst of these afflictions. And then a corollary of that becomes a second point, which is very similar. And that's that this. There is no divide then between the sacred and the secular. There's no divide from the perspective of God the kingdom of God, in the mind of God, between the, sick, the sacred and the secular. The incarnation makes this, key, this clear because what God does in the incarnation in draping himself in humanity is the sacred invading the secular, but not to destroy it, but to save it. That's abundantly clear. In the incarnation, the sacred invades the secular, but not to destroy it, but to save it, to redeem it, to renew it. Now this one, that there's to be no divide between the sacred and the secular is a huge one for the American church to get to. This is a huge hurdle for us to overcome. Here's a quote that'll help us. In the incarnation of the eternal word, all false dualisms between the material and the spiritual, visible and invisible Human and divine, temporal and eternal, this worldly and otherworldly, finite and infinite, were dissolved in the totally integrated person of Christ. So the fact that Christ became a man and was fully man and fully God confronts the ungodly division that we put up in our own little worlds. What we do is we seriously err when we think that God only cares about churchy stuff or even when he only cares about our problems. And that's often our our perspective of God, isn't it? If we're honest, is yeah, he cares about churchy stuff and what I'm gonna do Sunday morning. And then I think he cares about my problems. And that's where a lot of us stop. But that's not what we see in the Bible. And we make a huge error when we think that. Here's a, a profound statement. God cares as much about our kids' soccer games as he does about our church's Sunday gatherings. That's a truth. That, and, and if we lay hold of that, that God cares as much about the soccer game as a Sunday gathering, that will change the way that we live. Number one, I would suggest to you that life becomes more fun. I I think that life is just more fun with Jesus. I've lived it both ways to varying degrees, including Jesus in normal life and excluding him from that, as most Americans do. And I will testify, can I maybe get a witness, that life is more fun with Jesus involved in it. It really is. And and if we get this, and and we need to get this, not because it's some neat idea that I'm having, but because this is what scripture says. God cares as much about the soccer game as a Sunday gathering. Does he not care when the sparrow falls from its nest and the sparrow never went to church? (laughs) Get that. I've been really trying to lay hold of that in my life. And uh, recently I went to the park with my dad and uh, my two kids, Isaiah and Daisy. Daisy. And we went there to fly this super cool little airplane that my son got for his birthday. That's really awesome. And we're in the park and uh, we were flying it. And I was just kind of sitting there hanging out with the kids and grandpa and Isaiah taking turns shooting the thing and uh, the plane. And, um, and I was just sort of meditating on this, just really trying to let this soak in. that God cares about this moment right now as much as he cares about that moment Sunday morning when I'm standing in the pulpit and really letting that sink in. And I'll tell you, it just made my time in the park more cool. And and I found myself praying, not out loud, like not weird, you know what I mean? But just praying and just praying blessings over my family and over my dad and over my kids and that the Lord would bless that time. And then my dad and I found ourselves praying. I think my dad gets this. He's here this morning. Uh, We were shooting the airplane and it went really close to getting stuck in these trees. And you know, when your nine-year-old son gets a birthday present and grandpa gets a stuck in the tree, that's gonna be a bad scene. And so the thing was heading toward these trees and me and my dad are going, Lord, please, no. Oh, Jesus, please, no. And I'm telling you, the plane goes, whoop, whoo, away from the trees and never got stuck in the trees. Now call me nuts. And some of you do. But I, I think the Bible says to us that God cares as much about those moments as he does these moments. And if we'll get that, It'll change life. It'll change family life. It'll change community life. And it'll change mission. Now, when I say that, then that God cares as much about the soccer game as the Sunday gathering, I simultaneously, because I think it's fair, want to take some pressure off. I want to take a little bit of pressure off. Because I don't think that means then that every time you go to your kid's soccer game, you either need to feed you know, the hungry person there or preach to the unrepentant person there. I I don't think that's what it means. I don't think that uh, being on mission and realizing that God cares about all those moments in life doesn't mean that we always have to be dealing, you know, with a homeless problem or, or preaching against unbelief. We're called to imitate the life of Christ, to emulate the life of Christ. And I think that part of that includes his capacity to enjoy life. I, I can't read the gospels without coming away with a sense that Jesus enjoyed life. I mean, what did he talk about? You know what I mean? He talks about the sparrows and he talks about the garden and what's going on in the marketplace. And we see his interactions with people and because God created all things and said it was good and created all things for his pleasure and Christ is a creator of all things. I can't help but think that Christ enjoyed Incarnational life, And so I want to take some of the pressure off because I've put this pressure on myself before to think that what it means to be on mission is every time I get on a plane and there's someone sitting next to me, I better share the gospel with them on this two hour flight or I'm a failure. And every time I'm at my kid's soccer game and there's someone next to me, I better address their spiritual need or their physical needs or I'm a failure. And I just don't think that's the way that it works. I think that part of imitating the incarnation, following Jesus Christ, is learning to enjoy life. I think that's part of who we're supposed to be as God's redeemed people. Understand that the needs of the world are not what dictates mission. There's endless suffering, endless poverty, endless unbelief. Jesus said, The poor you will have with you always. It's not the needs around us that dictate mission. It's the will of Jesus that dictates our mission. So as someone said on the Missio Christi website this week, they posted and said, the goal of my daily life is to listen to the Holy Spirit to discover the mission of Christ. And so that if Christ is saying, enjoy this time in the park with your kids, enjoy the time in the park with the kids and may God be glorified in it. But if Christ is saying, minister to the needs of this person or proclaim the gospel to this person, then do it. But it's not the needs of the world. It's not as though every need that you see is an immediate obligation for the Christian. It is rather the will of the one who sent us, Jesus. Remember from a previous lesson what does it mean to be sent? It means to do the will, the works, and speak the words of the one who sent us. And what we see in the gospels, which is profound, is that Christ did not heal every leper in Israel. And that even though Christ was incarnate in Israel, when he ascended, there was still poverty in Israel. There were still sick people. He didn't cure every blind man, not every lame person. So it's not as though every need that we see is an obligation. The needs of the world don't take mission. The will of Christ dictates mission. Of course, then inherent in that is that we need to learn to listen to Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, we're God's workmanship, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Romans 8.14 says, we who are the children of God are being led by the Spirit of God. So part of the challenge in the adventure of the Christian life becomes listening to the Spirit enough to respond to the appropriate needs. If you become merely need-driven in Christian mission, you will be ruined. We're not need-driven, we're call-driven. What is the Spirit of Christ saying to do? Do that, no more and no less. So having taken some of the pressure off of that statement that God cares as much about the soccer game as a Sunday service, I do want to say that what it means practically is that we as the American church need to repent of compartmentalization and privatization. The compartmentalization of our lives and the privatization of our faith. And you know, we're guilty of that. We say, this is churchy stuff. This is God stuff. This is Jesus' stuff. This is mission stuff. And this is my stuff. We're guilty of that in our own hearts. We're guilty of that in our own homes and in our community. And we're guilty of the privatization of our faith. And this is, this is almost an American mantra now. That, that faith is Private. And more and more it's being pushed that faith is to be lived out in the private realm, in the private life, not in the public sector. And that needs to be repented of. Because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the so-called sacred and the so-called secular. And he cares about both. And scripture will not let us off the hook here. Just think about what we see in the gospels. Did Jesus, during the time that he was, during the time of the incarnation, did he spend most of his time in the temple and in the synagogues, in the church, so to speak? That is not where Jesus spent most of his time. Where do we see Jesus spending the vast majority of his his time even during the time of his ministry, which is predominantly what the gospels deal with? So when Jesus did ministry, Okay, the account of what we have in the gospels. Where was he most of the time? Well, here's some evidence. Of the 52 parables that Jesus told, 45 of them took place at the workplace. Of the 52, 45 were spoken in the marketplace context. Of the 132 public appearances of Jesus, 122 of them were, we're in the marketplace. The vast majority of Christ's time was spent in the marketplace, in the public sector. And the church seemed to, continuing the mission of Christ from Acts 1 in the book of Acts, follow suit. Of the 40 miracles in the book of Acts, 39 of them took place in the marketplace. so much so that evidence rings on our ears that we see we've moved far away from the mission of Christ and biblical first century book of Acts Christianity because our life speaks mostly of the opposite. But what we see in the New Testament is that Christ did most of his work where most people spent most of their time at work. That's where Christ did most of his mission and ministry And I say this not because this is a sermon about the workplace, though we could do one. I say this just to illustrate how profound this false separation is that we brought up. What we've done is that where Christ was most is the very place that we've taken him most out of as American culture and as American Christians. Dallas Willard in one of his books says, There truly is no division between sacred and secular except what we have created. And that is why the division of the legitimate roles and functions of human life into the sacred and secular does, get this phrase, incalculable damage to our individual lives and the cause of Christ. Holy people, church, must stop going into church work as their natural course of action and take up holy orders in farming, industry, law, education, banking, and journalism with the same zeal previously given to evangelism, to pastoral work, and so-called missionary work. Here we're recapturing our sense of sentience that wherever you are right now and where you spend most of the time in your life is your mission field. And this is really hard for us as North American Christians to lay hold of because we have so bought into and we have so misapplied that whole separation of church and state thing. We've so bought into it, even in the church, and we have so misapplied that concept. We made it absolute nonsense. And the reason we do that continue to buy into that is because the current predominant American mindset sees religion as claiming very little allegiance in our lives. Most Americans see religion, most Christians see Christianity as an add-on to a good life. As here's my life and there's Christianity. My life is represented by this big circle and Christianity is is a part of that, a good part of that in there. Take, for example, the worldview of Islam. Islam sees things totally opposite. Islam says, here's Islam, here's my life. That's a more correct view of religion. If only Christians would see Christianity that way. Here's Christianity, here's God's story, here's my life. Instead, we say, here's my life Here's God's story in Christianity. And that is a monumental failure that messes everything up. You see, we ask the wrong question. We say, what does God want to do in my life, in my story? But but the question for the Christian who is biblical is, how does my life play out in God's story, in God's life? See, it's a different question and it's a different end result. And so because we have this American mindset that sees religion as claiming very little allegiance, we feel liberality to compartmentalize and to privatize our Christian expression. And because we have done that and because we've allowed that and bought into that as a church, we now have an American culture that includes workplaces and schools where it's not considered kosher to speak about Jesus, right? That's pretty much accepted now in America. You shouldn't speak about Jesus or you could even say religion in schools and you shouldn't speak about that in the workplace. And so what a lot of Christians are doing is falling back on the excuse for where they spend the most of their time. Hey, I'm just not allowed to talk about Jesus at work. I want to be on mission, but it's just not appropriate at work. And that might, you know, bum out my boss or endanger my income. I'm just not allowed allowed to talk about my faith at work or at school, whatever it might be. Now, the first thing I would ask you about that is, is that really true? Or is that some BS American perception? Is that really true? You're really not allowed to speak about Jesus at your workplace. Secondly, I would say, if that is true, awesome, awesome. Awesome, because what history shows us and what the world shows us right now is where Jesus is most forbidden is where the gospel is most fruitful. That's what we see in the world around us. Where Christ is most forbidden, the gospel is most powerfully going forth in the world. So the less opportunity you have to talk about Jesus, the more opportunity you have to be like Jesus. So I would say if you're not allowed to talk about Jesus in the workplace or school or whatever your context, wonderful. The gospel kicks butt in that sort of context. And the less opportunity we have to talk, the more opportunity we have to be. And what I think we're all discovering is that that's a lot harder to do than to say. Someone posted this on the Missio Christi website this week. He was referring to uh, the previous lesson where we talked about how it's not being on mission to invite somebody to church. That's not what it means to be on mission, right? We talked about that. He says, I understand why it's so much easier for me and for many Christians to just invite people to church rather than to live as a Christian example. I am afraid to try and live as a Christian example. I often fail at it. Non-Christians will put me to shame in how they love and how they treat people in the community. To even match many non-Christians is hard. To surpass them to the point that I'm radiating Christ is an overwhelming prospect. I might be okay 28 days out of the month, but it just takes your non-Christian business associates seeing you those other two days at your worst for them to see a hypocrite and someone who is judgmental rather than loving. Can anybody relate to that? you fully. I can totally relate to that. He is absolutely right. That's a tough reality. Someone else posted this quote by G.K. Chesterton, sort of in response. It says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that's where a lot of Christians are being on mission. They see it as difficult And so it's left untried. And he's right. There's non-Christians in our community that are better Christians than we are as far as living it out. I mean, I know some of them. But we need to remember two things. Number one, we need to remember that when it comes to saving people and God's kingdom and God's gospel going forth, that God is bigger than our blunders. You gotta lay hold of that. You gotta know that. At the end of the day, we're not going to say that people's salvation depends upon us. We're going to say it depends upon God. That's where we fall theologically. Okay, but, but still, throughout history, God chooses to work through people rather than independent of people. But we've got to know that God is bigger than our blunders, and that's what church history proves. If you've never taken a church history class or read a book, do it. It is the messiest thing in the history of the universe, the church is. The fact that it still exists and people still come is absolute concrete proof that God is bigger than our blunders. Gotta lay hold of that in our work lives, in our daily lives, because we're gonna blow it. The second thing we've gotta lay hold of is this, the power of the gospel, okay? Our good deeds, so to speak, are not merely good deeds. They are purposeful partnership with God, They're not our good deeds, there's Christ's good deeds, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They're not merely good deeds, they're not merely humanitarian in and of themselves. They are purposeful, powerful, partnership with God. That's what it means to be sent, to do the will, work, and speak the words of the sender. So then, when we think about the gospel and speaking it and living it out, we're not to see it as a competing ideology or philosophy. It's the power of God unto salvation. And it works in men and women transformation. And people are not transformed by ideas about God. Those abound in culture. People are not transformed by ideas about God. Don't worry about those. People are transformed by the power and person of God. So that. When we engage in the work of Christ in the world around us, as messy as it is, as bad as we are at it, there is a different effect. Listen to this. When we do those things, there is a different effect in the spiritual realm than if it was purely a humanitarian effort because it's what Christ is doing in the world. If we really hear what the Spirit says and engage in that, there's a different effect in the spiritual realm. And it has a different effect on the spirits of men and women because it's partnership with God. And God speaks through that. And the messiness and the failures, He's bigger than. He speaks through it because that's what God is doing. That's why the Missio Christi, the mission of Christ, is so important. That's why we're not need driven, we're call driven. Because if Christ is calling us to do something, he's doing it. And he's faithful to complete the good work he's begun, right? And so when we do those things, even though we're not that good at it, there's power in them. If it's what Christ is doing and it impacts the spiritual realm in a different way. So it's not a competition with non-Christians. I know they beat us a lot of times at being Christian in their love, so to speak, but it's not a competition because what Christ is doing has a power of Christ behind it. So then what we need to do for ourselves and for the world as a church is rekindle a confidence that the gospel can be communicated through ordinary means, that the gospel can be communicated through service, sacrifice, kindness, love, and good deeds, not apart from proclamation, but in partnership with proclamation that those things by the Spirit of God communicate who God is. The purpose of Ephesians 2.10, good works that we should walk in them, is to exegete, explain to the world who God is. Now, this becomes more important in our immediate context, in our culture, as we become more and more postmodern in perspective. Okay, just let me say almost nothing about postmodernism, but a couple things. I know it's a daunting phrase, but it's important that we sort of understand the culture around us. The incarnation took place in culture, right? Christ came as a Jew into Jewish culture in a Jewish context, did Jewish things with Jewish people as a Jewish man. So the incarnation denotes culture and context. So if we're gonna do incarnational mission and ministry, we've gotta understand some culture and some context. And the culture that we live in is a postmodern culture. Now, I'll just say a couple things. But on the Missio Christi website, we posted a message that I did on truth in the postmodern era. I talk about the premodern era, its presuppositions, its assumptions, and its results. The modern era, which ended a few decades ago, its assumptions, presuppositions, and results. And the postmodern mindset that pervades our culture today, that we are part of. One thing I'll say is this but get more at the website. But I'll say this. The postmodern mindset is much less concerned with prove it to me and more concerned with be it to me. That's a big deal. Okay? The the postmodern mindset, our current culture, much less concerned with prove it. Show me the evidence. That that was a modern mindset that was concerned with the the concrete and the evidential. Okay? The postmodern mindset is more concerned with be it to me then prove it to me. Second thing I'll say is that from a postmodern perspective, truth claims, which everybody makes and Christians make it all the time and we need to, are often interpreted as political strategies promoting self-interest. That when we say this is truth, where the thoroughly postmodern mind goes, it says that's political. In claiming that, you have some sort of self-interest now, one more thing that I'll say about postmodernism, and then I'll tell you why I think it's really good for Christianity, which is counterintuitive. Postmodernism spawns pluralism. Okay, what is pluralism? In the general sense, it's the acknowledgement of diversity. And a pluralistic culture, which is ours, is a culture in which diversity of racial or religious or ethnic or cultural groups is tolerated. Okay, so postmodernism as a rejection of modernism tolerates, embraces, celebrates diversity because modernism saw that there were differences in value between perspectives and this brought oppression, the postmodern sees. And so the postmodern says, we value all perspectives equally. That frees us from oppression. So we celebrate diversity. You've seen the bumper stickers, celebrate diversity. That's, that's a postmodern perspective. You've seen the bumper stickers that say coexist and they take religious symbols from all the different world religions and say coexist. That's a postmodern perspective. Now, therefore, and this is an oversimplification, but postmodernism is less concerned with proof and more concerned with fruit, suspicious of claims as maneuvers for self-interest, and values diversity and all sorts of expressions of life, including religion, that's pluralism. Initially, initially, gosh, swine flu, initially, (laughs) we would think that that's a really bad thing for Christianity going forth because it's a rejection of absolute truth. And it's true, 75% of not yet Christians in America say there's no absolute truth. That could be a big problem. There's a general suspicion of political maneuvering by those who claim to have the truth. And 75% of young, not yet Christians, that's age 16 to 29, see Christians as too political. And there's an accepting of all religions as being equal. And that's what people think. Four out of five young, not yet Christians believe Christianity teaches the same basic ideas as the other religions. So, this is bad news for a church and a Christian expression that wants to do business as usual. If we wanna have proclamation without any real demonstration, if we're gonna have politicization without humble incarnation, if there's gonna be loathing in place of loving. In other words, if we're gonna be known just for what we're against instead of what we are for. But I think this is good news because I think Christ is raising up and calling us to be a church and an expression of Christianity that lets our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven, Matthew five sixteen, And that we are gonna put forth a demonstration of transformation, Romans twelve 2. Don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that we are a church that wants to speak the truth in love be known what we're for, not just what we're against, but put the truth out there. And so I think that a postmodern context, which is the one we're dealing with, is really good news for biblical Christianity. And that we need to see culture as the opportunity, not the enemy. We fail if culture is always the enemy. Culture is the opportunity for the gospel to go forth. And what we see in the first century Roman, Greco-Roman world is a pluralistic culture that was a lot like ours. And what did Christianity do in the first century world? It kicked rear end. Christianity spread in the first couple centuries in a way that nothing has ever spread around the world before, except for swine flu. In the most amazing way, And what history tells us is that Christianity does, biblical Christianity, incarnational mission, does really well in a context of pluralism and opposition, which is what we're dealing with. So you can't just see culture as the enemy. You have to see it as the opportunity. And here's a really good thing. Okay, here's a really positive thing about a postmodern culture is that it's more open to spirituality. Spirituality. Modernism was a rejection of spirituality. Pre-modernism started with God. Modernism starts with I. Post-modernism, now rejecting modernism, is more open to spirituality. And so what we have in culture are more people having spiritual conversations. And we can say conclusively that Americans, generally speaking, are seeking and talking about spiritual things. In fact, 82% of Americans say they are spiritual seekers. 82% are looking for something spiritual. 52% say that they've talked about spiritual things in the last 24 hours. Get that. More than half of the people that you'll go to work with tomorrow are going to have a spiritual conversation tomorrow. And more than eight out of 10 of them are looking for something spiritual. The question that is haunting me is why aren't we in those conversations? They're happening every day in the world around us. And why aren't we in more of those conversations? Because we are more known for what we're against than what we're for. We're more known for anti-homosexual attitudes, hypocrisy, and judgmentalism than love, compassion, and humility. And humility is the final point in a very quick one if you'll give me a couple more minutes. What our text tells us is that Christ humbled himself to become a man. So the primary application of the incarnation is humility. Humility. Again, very quickly, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus think we'd have a more welcome voice in the spiritual conversations happening around us if we were more like Jesus in the attitude of putting others interests before our own but we have a tendency as Americans to always be asserting our rights it's very American it's very contrary to Christianity Christianity is a surrendering of rights because Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he surrendered it to become a man. And at the cross, he surrendered all of his rights. And so the way that we do incarnational mission is by in humility, surrendering our rights. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. I'll end with two little examples from my life recently. And I'm just gonna be really open about these. I'll give you a a pass and a fail, okay? Here's a fail from my life recently. As I've been thinking about living incarnationally and being on mission with Jesus, one of the areas that I realize I fail horribly in is in recreation. For me, one of my primary recreations is surfing. And when it comes to being like Jesus as it pertains to surfing... I've been getting so busted by the Lord. I fail so horribly in this area. Because surfing's a very individual thing, right? It's, there, there's no teams in surfing. It's all about I. It's a very competitive thing. And I grew up surfing in a place called Ringcom, which is a very competitive lineup. And my dad took me out there when I was a little kid and I learned how to get waves in spite of everybody else. And the Lord has tempered that a bit in my Christianity But without appearing aggressive or or bumming people out too much, I can just oftentimes get more waves than I should get. And, And what I'm discovering is that Christ cares as much about my surfing as my preaching. He cares as much about the way I go surfing as the way that I preach in the pulpit. And this is ruining my life. And, and so have this attitude in me, which was also in Christ Jesus, that even though he could have gotten all the waves he want, he surrendered some to care for the interests of others. And there, I see a bunch of you in here that have served with me for years and served with me all the time. And you know, that's just BS. I, I just, I, I, I'm selfish when I serve. And I'm confessing to you guys that this is one of the areas where this is playing out in my life, and I've got a big fat fail on my face right now. So I wanted to work on that. See, he cares as much about my surfing as my preaching. Blows my mind. Here's a pass, maybe. Uh, most of you guys know that uh, my daughter, in the course of chemo in the last couple of weeks, was given the wrong medicine. And it was the wrong formulation of a certain medicine. And she had a a radically violent violent reaction to it. It looked to me like she was about to die. I thought she was dying right in front of me. Um, It was one of the most horrific moments of my existence. So there was a mistake made. She got the wrong medicine. A little five-year-old with stage three cancer. That should never happen. Someone made a mistake. It almost cost us dearly. So the American mindset immediately went to litigation. Hey, this is is malpractice. This is wrong. This is horrific. People can't get away with this. This is insane. How could they give her the wrong chemotherapy? But then Christianity says, have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but surrendered his rights for the better of others. And I couldn't escape my Christianity. As much as I was rattled by that and upset by that, as much as that was horribly unjust and wrong and horrific in every way, My wife and I were able to sit before multiple doctors who bear responsibility and say, we forgive you. We're Christians. And we can't hold other people to a standard of perfection when we can't attain to a standard of perfection. You guys made a mistake. We understand that. People make mistakes. And the American in me is going, that's a big mistake, dude. but Christ was crucified. And so we're able to look him in the eyes and say, we forgive you, it's okay, and we love you, and we appreciate you. So freeing. So much freedom to have this attitude in ourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And to embrace incarnational ministry involves a willingness to relinquish our own desires and interests in the service of others. To not want to see heads roll, justice on my behalf, but to exalt forgiveness and mercy because that's what Christ has done with us. How can you do that at work tomorrow? How can you do that at school? How can we do that in our community? That's what the Lord is asking. Lord, we just want you to work these things out in our lives. We want to respond rightly to you coming in the flesh. And so work this out in us, Lord. Make application. I thank you for the way that you're dealing with me in my own life, Lord. And I just humble myself before you and say I need more help. And we ask that as a church and as the church, you would do a deep work in us of having this mind in ourselves, which was also in you. Teach us to surrender and give up our rights and to promote the interests of others above our own. Let us be the ones who take the fall at work. You took the fall for us. Teach us what it would mean as employees and employers to do that as moms and dads. Teach us what that would mean in our businesses in buying and selling and recreation at school. Teach us these things, Lord. Prayer team is up here. If you need help with anything today, come get on your face before the Lord. Celebrate the Lord's Supper. But let's do business.